0: Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Stuart Bateson, and I spent nearly 34 years in policing. And I loved just about every minute. <laughs> okay, maybe not the last couple, but the good times far outweigh the bad. And when I think of those good times, the memories all involve incredible characters, some from inside the job and some out. And I hope through these podcasts, We can explore together the stories of some remarkable guests and their journey with and through policing. I'm really excited to have our next guest here today. Uh, Incredible career that we're going to be discussing. 42 years in policing, 38 nearly as a detective, a fully qualified FBI profiler, a clinical psychologist and a doctor of psychology, Retired Detective Senior Sergeant, or I should I say, Dr. Deb Bennett. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Stu. Before we go any further, can I congratulate you on the work that you do with your co workers? I think this is a fabulous initiative. And yeah.
0: Oh, thank well done. you. It's thank wonderful. you. I appreciate it. Uh, wow, that's a lot, all those qualifications. Let's, let's mm. take it back to when you started back in 1981. Mm-hmm. What drew you to policing?
1: I really wanted some excitement, I wanted variety, and I, I, where else would you be able to Shoot an Uzi machine gun. <laughs> did
0: you do a, that? I, yes. I didn't do that.
1: <gasps> uh, in, back in the day, we used to go to Pakapanyal. Oh, you know, yes. part of DTS. DTS. Mm-hmm. yeah,
0: yeah, I do. I actually did do that. Actually. Yes, that you good... see?
1: Well, that was a standout for me. In, trace of bullets, you know, how much fun is that? <laughs> Where else can you legally do car chases? I mean, it, it was, I was chasing adrenaline, but as you know, Stu, it's 80% sheer boredom. 5% share to her and the rest somewhere in between. But there's a lot of sitting around, isn't there? Sitting there around. There is, yeah. Waiting at court, sitting around, waiting at demonstrations.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as you rise through the ranks, a lot of sitting around in meetings, which is even worse than all of that put together. That is true. Yeah. So when did you grow up? Would you uh, city girl?
1: No, country girl. So uh, uh, Ristel Kadinia, which is kind of between Cooey and and Pakenham, my parents had a farm. Uh, my dad was a horse trainer and we had milking cows as well. So my dad and brothers got the horses and mum and the girls got the milking cows. Oh, of
0: course. That's yeah. the separation of duties as it was you go, then. right yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. So 1981 wasn't the most popular career choice for young women, I would imagine. How many women were in your squad when you went through? Mm.
1: There was just me and one other, right. Pam Walker. And in our sister squad, there were, there were two women. There hadn't been women in, in for quite some time, and I can't remember why that was, but we were the beginning of women coming through again. So we had to do exactly the same training on track and field and in the classroom, but uh, on graduation, women could only go to the police women's division, right. which meant lost children and property, and men got to do whatever... The exciting were. stuff. The exciting stuff, exactly. Not straight yeah. to Uzi machine guns, but no. much more exciting than property.
0: Yes, yeah. yeah. So what was your experience back then? Did you enjoy the academy?
1: Uh, I did. I did. I um, it, the, the whole idea of squads uh, making you belong to something, having that camaraderie, yeah. being in it together. Mm. I mean, it wasn't exactly platoon type, you know, army drills or anything. But for a country girl, it was regimented and um, it's easy in lots of ways, isn't it? You get told what time to get up, you get told where you have to be and you just mm. do it.
0: And I think, you know, the thing I remember from those days, you actually feel part of something, you know, automatically you feel like you're, you're a member of something and, and doing something that's quite important and special.
1: It's fundamental. To our survival is belonging.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, when you graduated, where did you go at your first station?
1: Well, me and a, another guy from my squad and two guys from the sister squad were taken straight from the academy and we went undercover for I think it was about 10 months. And wow. we were working, um, infiltrating SP bookies. So, I think the idea was is that they thought p- perhaps police were involved. In the underworld in that way yep. somehow and so they wanted recruits who didn't know the lingo and hadn't been to the police club
0: right yeah. we weren't known exactly yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what 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 did that involve? Did you have to go in and lay bets, or?
1: Uh, well, it was a long time ago, Stu, <laughs> but I know it involved going to a lot of pubs. Right. <laughs> and uh, I think we did have to mix in with the locals, yeah. which means uh, we weren't drinking lemonade. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Oh, so, well, that sounds like a great first assignment at yeah. uh, the mm-hmm. academy. Uh, and did you end uh, end up going to uniform after that?
1: Mm. So I was living in Brighton at the time, and uh, so went to Brighton for three months training and then it was deadly boring stuff yeah. was happening. so then I transferred to South Melbourne and I loved it yeah I loved it
0: yeah the inner city I think is uh, what uh, where you get real uh, excitement at least on night shift there's people around there's things going on
1: so much fun And those days there were 62 hotels in Port Melbourne South Melbourne Wow I know. So if you got kicked out of one, it was pretty That's easy like, to find another. Yeah, and uh, and of course it was the commission flats, and then there were really wealthy pockets. Yeah, there was the beach. The Swans were still South Melbourne footy team. Ah, yes, of course. They had everything. In and the Halas, day. the Greek soccer. Ah, so it was. Yeah. And just the characters from the station. It was. It was so much fun yeah it. yeah
0: it was, would have been quite the place to be with all that going on mm-hmm. wouldn't it, it yeah was. yeah oh terrific. Yeah. and but you eventually you wanted to become a detective what drew you to thinking about that type of work
1: well I, I I'm a high achiever I like to go for what's difficult I think partly to prove to myself that I can do it mm. and partly because I like detective work. I like investigating. Mm. I like the puzzle. Yeah. And that wasn't, um, there weren't, weren't many women there either. So when I went through detective training school, there was only me and two other girls, and neither of those girls passed, which was oh. a real shame because they were better detectives than me. There's, right. I, I didn't know them, but I could tell. Mm. Uh, but I was more academic, and so and really that's what it was. It was a lot of rote learning.
0: It was. I remember having to learn the definitions of an incredible amount of things off by heart, which is it's a crazy way to learn, right? But that was what we did back in the crazy. day. Crazy, and yeah. it did
1: not mean you were a good detective. No. So no. So I managed to get through it, and, but those those girls, they, they really should have.
0: Yeah. What course number did you did you do, mm,
1: dear? 187 comes to mind, but
0: whether or not it was, I don't Yeah, know. might might have been earlier than that. But um, what year? Maybe, 19, maybe
1: 1987
0: or 1988. Yeah. yeah, okay, great, great. And what was your first post as a as a detective?
1: Glen Waverly, CI.
0: Right, so not exactly the, the mega centre of crime, I would have thought.
1: No, no. Uh, I didn't really enjoy it, or oh, actually it's not true. When I first went there I did because I had a terrific boss and I liked my colleagues, but it, it's such a broad area Whereas, say, Fitzroy, you know, it's one square kilometer mm. and you get to know everybody. You don't have to have your head in, in Malways all the time. Yeah, you, you really get to know your area and the people in it, whereas somewhere as broad as Glen Waverley, it just goes on and on and on, yeah. and um, it wasn't very exciting.
0: Yeah, and when did you end up going into the squads? So the the uh, crime squads, when did you go into there?
1: Uh, well, I had a break from the job before ah, okay, I yeah. did that. So I, I got was very unhappy at Glen Waverley, and then I, trans, I got a temporary transfer to Springvale but then some moratorium came in and everybody had to go back to wherever they were gazetted and there was no movement allowed. And so I'm a believer in looking after your own mental health if... Tried to fix things and you can't
0: yeah. leave. Yeah, you've got to take action. You're responsible for yourself, really, aren't you?
1: Exactly. So I did.
0: So what did you do?
1: So I started Faulty Flowers Lawn Mowing and it was...
0: A lawn mowing ground? lawn mowing
1: <laughs> ground, mm-hmm. Well, that's, it so that would have, would have been hard work. It was hard work. It was 67 lawns a fortnight. Wow. But it wasn't just the, the lawn mowing. It was... Going to the tip and getting rid of all the lawn clippings and all of that kind of stuff—it was heavy, yeah, hard, hard. work—and
0: would have kept you fit, though I imagine
1: I super fit. Yeah. And uh, I like making straight lines. So, yeah, that's right. So that was There's good. something
0: about the order, isn't it? I mean, I always love mowing my lawn because I just go, "Oh, this is nice." It makes me feel good about it. It puts order back into chaos. True, yeah. and it's a good smell. A good smell. It's a good smell, <laughs> yeah. but there wasn't enough to keep me
1: interested. So right. So within a short period of time, I realized that I was a people person and I needed to work with people. Yes. So I traveled and such, such, and then I came back and I rejoined and then luckily for me, my original complaints had been documented and I got everything back. I had passed my sergeant's exams. Oh, terrific. So I, I had to start off again as a constable, but I just took promotion rapidly, went to Fitzroy CI, uh, Richmond uniform as a sergeant, and then back to Rape Squad. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's when you started at the, the, the. So, what? what that was um, mm. in 1994? Was it? Maybe? Yeah.
1: Mm. So, yeah, Rape Squad, so it was all stranger rapes, and they're, they're hard mm. because, contrary to CSI, a lot of crime scenes don't yield DNA. Yes. And they're strangers. So, where do you start? Mm. So, at that point, uh, I started looking at how we might do our job better because essentially we were reliant on the public and, of course, your victim's highly stressed as well and descriptions are not always very accurate Mm. because of the high levels of stress. So, they can be very accurate and they can be completely not accurate. Mm. So, how much hold do do you give the... The face fit
0: yeah yeah and it's a really difficult thing to do too it's to be able to recall from your traumatic experience what the person looked like and then describe it accurately is very difficult for a witness
1: very difficult yeah yeah mm-hmm.
0: yeah so what did you do i th- this mm-hmm. is when we come into the profiling stuff a mm-hmm. little bit it?
1: so i uh, went to the inspectors and the superintendents asking what what can we do what Who can we involve that uh, may understand sex offenders better than we do? Because essentially we didn't understand sex offenders and a lot of people who work in sex offending investigations now still don't understand sex offenders. Mm. So it's not an homogenous group. They don't all come from the same motivation. It's a mixture of anger, power, control. But what the mix is gives you an indicator of who the person is in terms of how his friends would describe him, what sort of employment he would have, whether or not he's travelled a long way mm. to the crime or whether or not he's more likely to live within the block, whether or not he's had a hunting ground, whether or not he's put a lot of effort into targeting or it's been random. All of that gives you much broader range of investigative avenues.
0: Yes. Yeah, and it's based really, because we're not the only ones dealing with this. This is happening all over the world. Mm-hmm. When people actually study this and study when they catch the offenders, we get to learn about some of these things, don't we? And and as I understand it, that's where the FBI profiling came is based on, a whole lot of studies of offenders and what they have done at crime scenes.
1: That's it, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bushfire arsonists is another good example of, in general those who investigate don't understand what's going on, Mm. what the motivation are. And so it makes it harder to investigate, it just makes sense.
0: Yes, yeah, and it doesn't necessarily make sense to us because we're dealing with people with quite different personalities and Mm -hmm. quite different triggers and motivations.
1: And the police system's not set up for delving below the surface. Mm. So we interview, we cover off on the points of proof, uh, a lot of times you don't have a good relationship with mm. the offender and so we don't ask anything else around it. Mm. We don't we don't take the matter any further as to try to work out why him, why then and why there. Yes. Those three questions, if you get answers to those, you're way down the track in terms of being in a better um, situation to solve the crime.
0: So you had an opportunity to go to the FBI and study. How did that come about?
1: So I had uh, been talking about finding a different way. And at that particular time, Bronwyn Kilmire was the only person in Australia who had been trained by the FBI. So she was a South Australian policewoman working out of the ABCI and she was doing the profiling work for Australia. So essentially the FBI said, we're stretched too thin send us some police officers, we'll train them, and then you go back to wherever you came from and you train your own. Right. And as part of that training, they can come and train with us and travel around the US and Canada and train with different profilers, but essentially they're going to be your responsibility. So they're not members of the FBI. They formed their own group called the International Criminal Investigative Analysis Fellowship, and that's who problem was with. So uh, she was allocated five... Understudies from different states around Australia and I was chosen as one of
0: them. Wow, I remember that happening actually because I was yeah. a young detective at the time and yeah. of course, you know, like many young detectives, that would have been my dream to go and study with the FBI. Mm. Uh, and I remember going, oh my God, what a great opportunity. Was it? Was it a great opportunity?
1: Yes, it was. It was, most definitely. But like most things... It's a double-edged sword. It also it also, um, also ostracised me in a lot of ways that mm. I was alone in it. Yes. And uh, I think essentially I had said to you, the more educated I became, the more difficult it became in a lot of ways. And
0: yeah.
1: certainly not for everybody. There, I've worked with some great people over the years who have really championed what I've done. But I've also worked with people who found it threatening that I might come up with something that was gonna show them in a bad light or that they hadn't seen themselves. And you would know, Stuart, that it's really difficult for some police to admit they don't know everything. Yeah. And it's hard for them to admit mistakes.
0: Yes, that, that's absolutely true. And and look, we've all we've all got egos, but I've found over the years that you know, especially in some of the bigger squads, the egos are, are perhaps bigger than than other places. But I want to go back just a little bit, if I can. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me? So you went over uh, to the FBI. Mm-hmm. Where? So
1: I actually, so they sent the FBI to Australia and. Myself and the other understudies would meet in Canberra. We'd be up there for weeks, and then uh, once we became proficient to a certain level, then your sponsor here, which was Bronwyn, she signed off for me to go and uh, study with uh, four different uh, profilers in the U.S. and right. Canada. Wow! So that was ten months, and that was where did, where
0: did you go in the in uh, the U.S.?
1: So uh, I went to Ithaca, which is north of. Um, Goodness, what's the capital of um, B.C.?
0: Oh, um... No, so,
1: sorry, I, went, I started off in Vancouver. Yes. And then it was in Ontario anyway, oh, in, okay. in a little town yep. called Liria, and I went to uh, South Carolina.
0: Wow, mm-hmm. what an experience.
1: Yes, it, it was, and, but it was, it was lonely too yeah. because I was on my own. I was training with profilers who had their own lives to lead. Yes. Uh, I... Vic Pol didn't spring for a hire car, so right. you know, places like <laughs> South Carolina, there's no footpath. Nobody walks anywhere. Yeah, and uh, and I was walking. Right. So it was as if I didn't stand out enough as, <laughs> as it was, and so it was it was lonely. It was I was working during the day and then at night time, watching videos that they had given me to, you know, old crime scenes. Oh and kind gosh,
0: of stuff. so it actually quite. Because that would have been traumatic in itself, but be t- doing that for your in your downtime would have been tough.
1: It was pretty glum. Yes, mm-hmm. and and you know I had uh, I had dogs at home and it, just everything you can't garden. You, you know, yeah,
0: it's it was quite it isolating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But did you work on some great cases? Well? I did, I yeah. did,
1: and um, and of course you know the the 330 million or something we are 25 million. 20, yeah, I'm not quite those numbers back in those days but it, just by sheer numbers they have, they've got more crazy stuff going on and, mm. uh, and but that's how you learn by repetition and by, by seeing the same things over and over again yes. and, have, and using those as indicators it, it's investigating mm. but with with more background knowledge of why people do what they do
0: yeah, and I think that's incredibly important. You know, I think you're right. As police, we're, we're there at the the end of that and we catch the people that have done the, whatever it is, whatever the crime is, and we put them away. But if we really want to make a difference and make our job easier, we've got to understand why it's happening. Uh, you know, that's, that's the first step.
1: That's what I think. Yeah. Too. I think that that makes perfect sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So through this, and through this great opportunity that you had, um, you started to become interested in psychology.
1: Mm. Well, there are a, a whole different uh, range of, of studies that, that you need to have some vocabulary in. So this you, you can't possibly be a pathologist, a psychologist, a blood splash guy. You can't... One lifetime's not enough to get the theory and the practice.
0: But you have to have some understanding of them to be a profile,
1: Because you need to be able to speak the language and you need to know who your best resources are who who would be best for this to get a second opinion yeah and if you don't understand any if you don't really understand what their jobs entail you don't really know where to where to go
0: Mm. yeah that's right Mm. that's right so you had to do a little bit of study on all of those disciplines
1: exactly and psychology was one of them so i worked at lifeline for three years and i wasn't I didn't start off very well there, actually, Stuart. In fact, at one point during the the, the course, to, because you have to pay to work at Lifeline. Oh my God, do you? Mm-hmm, you do, because they don't want people just doing it for the for the yes. hell of it. They want you to be committed, and because they have very experienced uh, trainers to to get you to a point of proficiency where you can, you're good at doing the job. Yes. And about halfway through, one of the instructors came to me and she said, you have a lot of difficulty identifying feelings. Mm. You are a thinker, but you you can't identify feelings. Unless you can do that, then
0: you're not going to pass. Yes. I was horrified. (laughs) I was like, I don't fail, Stuart. (laughs) So this wasn't going to happen.
1: So that was a turning point for me of, of trying to recognise my own feelings so that I could recognise them in others. And so I started an undergrad degree at Melbourne and... Undergrad psychology is deathly boring, I think. It's yes. only when it, it becomes postgraduate that you start looking at abnormal psychology, and that's what I find really interesting. And so I had, uh, I did a, uh, an honours degree as an entryway to doing postgraduate work. And then a, a couple of things happened. By that stage, I had been uh, visiting... Various professors in different fields. There was uh, Paul Mullen, who was a professor of yes, psychiatry.
0: And he, he was very prominent in court reports um, in the Supreme Court. I remember his name. If, if we had anyone, Did you? Yeah. yeah, he would be the one. If we had anyone that was looking for mental incompetence as a defence, uh-huh. they usually saw Paul, as I remember. Yeah, a
1: fabulous fellow, yeah. so knowledgeable. He was one of my supervisors for my doctorate. Right. And the other was. Uh, Professor Jim Ogloff.
0: Who oh, yes. I've dealt with him a couple of times. What uh-huh. a wonderful That's, man he is.
1: Fabulous once again. Yeah. So uh, because I had uh, got to know them through by asking their opinions about different things as I was studying, they encouraged me to go on. Keep going. Uh-huh. And agreed to be my supervisors for my doctoral
0: thesis. Right. So just stepping back, so you did the doctorate and then did a master's? Or yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Tell me about the doctoral thesis. So it's a really interesting subject. Uh-huh.
1: Well, the other thing that spurred me on was at that point I had been working at State Intel. So there's been a there was a problem with my whole career in profiling of where would I be best placed. So I was working at State Intel, and I went on holiday. And when I came back, I was a senior sergeant. They had I was working with bi class. Do you remember that violent yes. crime analysis yep. system? So. The audience might be interested to know that we don't actually have a computer system that crosses borders, so you could be committing a series of rapes in Queensland and have something quite unique, such as a particular type of cable tie or something, but that would traditionally be hold back evidence, you're not going to tell the press about that because you're hoping to find some cable ties when you eventually find the offender.
0: You don't want him to change that signature because that's how you're tracking.
1: Exactly. So that would be hold back evidence. So that same offender could be a truck driver and he could be doing those same offences in Victoria, but we don't know about Mm. the Queensland offences because there is no computer base. No, and we don't
0: necessarily talk to each other as police forces.
1: Well, you know, there, and of course at different times you might, somebody from Sex Crimes Victoria would know somebody at Sex Crimes Queensland, but then people move around and then you lose those contacts and and so it goes on. So, at that stage, we were trying to get this database up and running, and so I was in charge of that, and I was doing the profiling work. I went on holidays, came back, and my boss at the time, Doug Cowlishaw, said, I'm sorry, but we had a discussion with Homicide whilst you were away, and we think you'd be a better place down there, so that's where you are. So I went down to Homicide, and it was Andy Allen who was the inspector there, and I didn't know him, and I said, apparently, I'm due to start here, and he said, Oh, no, we did have a conversation, but it ended up with you were to stay where you are at right. State Intel. So that went on for 11 weeks. I didn't uh, have anywhere to sit. I actually...
0: God, I just... It's, it, it fascinates me how badly we treat people, you know, and you hear stories like that, and you go, oh, my God, did that really happen? Mm.
1: What, what do you tell your family and friends? What do, you, what do you mean you haven't got anywhere to sit? You don't have a computer. Nobody knows where you are. I did go into work, but I could easily not have. hung yeah. around the canteen for the first few days, but I was close to tears and feeling pretty upset about yeah. it all. And um, at that moment, I decided I'm going to do my doctorate. Right. And that way, I can tell Vic Pohl, where to go if I reach a point where I just don't feel like I can cope with this anymore, but I really still well also love gives to work. you a
0: chance to to do something that you feel valued for, right? Mm-hmm. So, what was the thesis you did for your doctorate?
1: Well, essentially, I looked back at uh, ten years of homicides within Victoria, and then looked at what impact different mental health uh, issues had on offending. So. As an example, uh, female homicide offenders are different to male homicide offenders in terms of what their mental health look like. Right. And I think that that is probably because as a society we treat women Mm. differently. Mm. So men could have, uh, be in their first psychotic episode or not, but not recognised the same. When men behave badly. Yes. Then it's men behaving badly. When women behave just as badly, we're interested in what's happened to her that she yes. has behaved in that way. That because this is not
0: mm. that's a that's a that's a norm, isn't we go? Oh, we expect men to behave like that. Well, I we think
1: I mean, that's not essentially what the thesis was about. But I think that that's what yeah. it uncovered because no. women had been in touch with mental health services for a lot longer than men had before they committed their mm. homicides. So they they were getting different treatment.
0: Right. How long did it take you to get through that doctoral process?
1: It was four years. So a large component of it is thesis that you break up into papers to get them published in journals. Yes. And the rest of it is uh, classroom work and working as an intern. So you work in different mental health facilities. So I worked at Thomas Assembling Hospital a couple of times. I worked with male adolescents for positive sexuality, which is all teenage boys who have committed sex offences and mandated to get therapy. And uh, I worked in a general clinic, like, just for, you know, the worried well. Um,
0: well, what an experience. So Tom uh for, mm. for those that don't know, is the, is the institution here in, in Victoria where people that have been charged with murder uh, and been found not to be uh, competent, that's where they are. So you would have been surrounded day by day by the, some of the worst offenders mm. in the state.
1: That's true, Stu. Yeah. Yeah, and there some of the offenders that are in mainstream prison that become so unwell that they get uh, transferred out there, but there's only a certain amount of beds, and so you know the one who's who's the most well gets, gets shipped back. back. Mm, yeah. Not an ideal system.
0: So did they know you were a police officer while you were working there?
1: Well, the clients uh, didn't. didn't necessarily, unless I worked with this unless they were my client right so they didn't inform the entire house so yes. all the staff knew and if I uh, was designated a particular client I would tell them yes because
0: it's part of part of being uh, upfront and being having informed consent I suppose exactly yeah mm-hmm yeah
1: yes, but it, was, it was really challenging
0: I bet it was uh-huh. I bet it was and even working with young male offenders of, of sexual offences, I mm-hmm. would imagine that was a really great insight and help to your profiling.
1: Oh, Stuart, so did. It, it was fascinating, really. I had a great boss there too, uh, Irene, and she was very skilled in working with these boys. And, and, of course, there's a lot of shame that goes with sex offending. So if you kill somebody, then it's not necessarily the case that you won't be accepted back into society because you do your time there could be extenuating circumstances for why you kill somebody but if you commit a sex offense you're staffed
0: yes it stays with branded for life
1: branded for life and it has this huge impact on what job you can do etc cetera, etc cetera. so <laughs> I think that's part of the problem with people making admission to sex offenses is that you now have to wear this shame badge for the rest of your life so but you know contrary to popular opinion admitting to a sex offence and admitting remorse are not two factors indicative of whether or not you'll go on to re-offend right but our entire justice system is set up that that's what we want yes the judge wants it the cops want it the victim wants it. We all want you to say, yes, I did it, yes. and I'll never do it again. It was the worst thing I could have done. That's what we want. Yes. But it's not an in- indicator at all.
0: No, we want to believe that's true, but it's it's not necessarily so.
1: No, and it's not. that's not the same worldwide. So in other words, let's, I won't go off track too far here, but uh, Nordic countries don't treat their sex offenders the same way, and they have a um, the president recidivism right there is much less than ours oh wow yeah so there's lots to be learned from each other in yeah. different countries but it's a hard sell
0: it's a hard sell yeah because most of us are uh, you know street coppers who don't want to broaden our horizons in lots of ways <laughs> would that be true
1: well I, I think a lot of people are interested in it when you t- when you talk to them about it yeah. but uh but A lot are not either. Yes. It's easier if you just followed the bouncing ball. Yes. Because, uh, you know, when, when we get to um, who's at fault here, essentially it's, it's not the offender that should be in jail, it's his parents. Yes. But then the problem with that is it, it's not them that should be in jail, it's, it's their parents. Yes. And so yeah. we're, we're going to go right back to Adam and Eve here. Yeah. And, and that's why. Family therapy is so interesting because you get to see this intergenerational thing yes. happening over and over again. Yeah,
0: yeah. I often think about that when I when I hear of sexual um, offenders and, and especially people who commit murder in those circumstances. I often think, what happened to these people? Uh-huh. How did they end up like this? And and that is what exactly what you're saying. It's that often the roots are in their childhood. Often. Often. Yeah. Well,
1: you know whether whether it's, it's your environment or, or um, your DNA. You get to blame your parents either yeah. way. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's good. Um, so you, you get through your doctorate, but you're still working at mm-hmm. Vigpole during this time. So that's a big workload. How's um, life in Vigpole going for you when you're doing all these things? Because you're at Thomas Embling, you're at other institutions. Mm. How's life going for you?
1: Well, I, I did all of that intern work. I can't remember how what it is now, maybe 270 days or something. Uh, I did that on, on long service leave and annual leave, so uh, I w- it was okay because I was uh, doing a lot of the research on police time. So because I was get accessing homicide briefs in order to get the data, uh-huh. and so that was good. I was doing that, and then I was uh, I did a l- because. As it ended up, uh, I was the only uh, profiler other than Bronwyn there for a while. So, so Bronwyn became an assistant commissioner and he wasn't doing profiled work. The only other understudy that passed the entire uh, I, FBI program she wasn't treated very well by New South Wales Police, in fact abysmally, and she resigned within maybe 12 months of passing.
0: Right, so you're carrying the workload really for the whole country.
1: But it was fun, it was great and uh, and I got to work on some really interesting jobs.
0: Um, but what would have been a great great experience to be, I imagine you are flying up and meeting with the investigators and helping them with each case?
1: Yes I was, oh, yeah. but and, and it, it to have the inside look at some of those cases and uh, and to see how other police forces function, which is pretty much like Big Pole, right? But uh, but just different person, you know, the, yeah. the same stuff, but in, in a different state. It, it was fascinating. I I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, uh, that's been my experience. The times I've travelled, I go, yeah, no, pretty much the same all, all over the country mm. and, and indeed internationally. Um, there's, you know, police seem to operate in the same in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So you keep working through this. You get your doctorate. Mm-hmm. You then go on and do a master's in mm-hmm. family therapy. You're just a, a sucker for punishment.
1: Well, one of one of the guys that uh, one of my fellow students for for the doctorate, Joel Godforsen, uh So we were actually we qualified as clinical and forensic psychologists, meaning that we. are qualified to work with the forensic population and diagnose as well and He said what are we going to do now? And I was like you can shove academia where the sun don't shine. I'm over it. He said, oh come on How about this? This looks like family therapy and it's clinical which means that you're actually working with families as part of the Masters. So we was at the Bouverie Centre and you uh, have real families come in the student talks with the family and the rest of the students are behind glass and after the session, you swap. Right. So the family goes behind the glass and the psychologists are, are in the room and the family listen to the psychologists, social workers, whoever, discuss what they think the problems ah,
0: are. okay. Wow, interesting. It was so interesting. Yeah.
1: And I learned so much from that. Mmm. Uh, and so from that, I learned about some different techniques that, that I hadn't learned about in, in terms of trauma. Yes. I'll wait till you're ready to ask me about that. <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to
0: asking <laughs> about that. So all this, you're still working at VicPol. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you finish up in in last year, I think, was it, that you finished yes. up? yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, had you done mm-hmm. enough in, in Vic bowl? Is that where you feel you got to? Or?
1: uh Well, I do think I was institutionalised because I had been doing it for so long it was part of my identity. Who am I if I don't do this?
0: Yeah, I think we all get a bit like that Uh after 20 plus years.
1: And I really enjoyed it. So I think if if you're not enjoying the work anymore then that's one thing. But the politics was dreadful Right. and I did have some great champions along the way. Cindy Millen, Deb Robertson, Pat Boyle, uh, Bernie Rankin. Just were fabulous for me and they really tried to have the organisation accept me in a way and and utilise me but it wasn't enough Mm. couldn't get me there and so I finished up uh, that um, essentially they said we think this is a conflict of of interest never mind that I've been doing it for 20 years without any hiccup Uh, but this is a conflict of interest so first of all that's it for the your forensic work you can't do that anymore and then uh i complained i was like well that's too bad and now we've decided that you can't do your private practice either you can't see the the worried which you were doing along the way for the for the entire time i started uh working as a psychologist in 2006 Mm. and yeah so yes they said no that's it you're done so essentially put me in a broom cupboard right and I wasn't allowed to utilise my skills. It's
0: been such a shame, you know, uh, to to think like that and put someone, you know, put them to the side. I mean, I can't see the conflict of interest for your private practice uh, at all. Um, yeah, it seems like such a loss.
1: Yes, well, you know, they say things like, well, what if somebody tells you he murdered the Bobsey twins? You know, what are you going to do? What do you think I'm going to do? And, you know, I have to say... Uh, what sort of illness does he have that he's telling me? When yes. I've told him I'm a police officer, why yes. on earth is he telling me yes. that he's killed the Bobsy twins? Yeah, but I've got know,
0: ethical um, that I've got ethics that I have to adhere to, and these are the ethics. Exactly, you
1: know? but there would be the same ethics as a psychologist as yeah. it was a, as a police officer, mm. essentially. And you know, Stu, I really couldn't afford to get anything wrong because I could put both jobs in jeopardy. I had to walk a very straight oh, line. Yeah, everybody knew about. dual roles but you know as a uh, uh, as a lawyer you can work for the defense today the prosecution tomorrow nobody has any problem with that Mm. and as a uh, professor of psychology you can work for the defense today the prosecution tomorrow nobody's got any problems with that
0: so so when you um uh, eventually when you did resign Mm. um do you continue the profiling
1: um well i have been asked to do it to do it but uh, essentially nobody would be able to ask me through the proper channels yes, I because see. they they really don't want me to. Yes. Practice that skill.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's a shame.
1: It is because you and I both know that yes Vic Pole over the years have made a lot of mistakes. Yes. And that there is some real material there that we could learn from and be much better at what we do. But it doesn't come without uncovering it, and so it's not about a public shaming. It's about admitting that we all made mistakes and how we're we best going to rectify it. That that is something that's untenable. Yeah.
0: Like yeah, I think in my experience, I've noticed that uh, we tend to dig in and defend our positions rather than reflecting and saying, oh, "Maybe we could, maybe we could learn something here. Maybe we could do something different here." Totally. But we tend to dig in and just defend that position.
1: That's it exactly. Yeah, and I think. Uh you know, the culture at the top really has a big impact
0: yeah. on that. Yeah. So you leave Vicpol mm-hmm. uh, and you go. Uh, you got your private practice going, and still your forensic work. Tell me a little bit about the forensic work.
1: So, the forensic work is essentially of, uh, work with people who have a, a disability of some kind and and then broken the law. Mm. And so then really what any judge wants to know at any time is why is this person before us today? So yeah. what what predisposed them to yes. be here? What precipitated the offending? Yeah, so this what is court reports for report. sentencing. Exactly, yeah. perpetuated the offending. Yeah. And what are the protective factors? What, what needs to be put in place if they're not to come here yeah. again? Yeah. And so that's essentially, it's investigating again, yeah. why this person in this situation so, I do that, or I might write reports for somebody who, um, so, have been accused of something in specific, and then they, they think that it would be beneficial to have a psychological report to take to court yeah. to explain to the judge why. Well,
0: I couldn't actually think of anyone better qualified to do that reporting, considering your experience with the FBI. Uh, All your studies and your policing experience I couldn't think of anyone better qualified.
1: Thank you Stu. You
0: must be in high demand for it.
1: Well I think I I do have a really broad idea of what goes on in terms of what the motivation was and, and why people have not been able to put the brakes on. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. that kind of brings us
0: back full circle to family family therapy. Yeah, then we I, I really want to touch on um, on the trauma work as well mm. because you know most of us who have been in policing for any period of time have either directly experienced trauma or vicarious trauma dealing with witnesses and victims. How, how, do you work now with with people that have, have been exposed to trauma? Is that one of your specialties?
1: That is one of my specialties. And I'm certainly open to uh, seeing any police members, past or present, or, or any that they're in your veterans group. Yeah. Uh,
0: because I think it helps to have you know to see someone that's actually had some experience in policing too, because sometimes the trauma is around the organisation, right?
1: Well, <laughs> I think a lot of the times it is. Yeah. A lot of the times it's because we we don't everybody wants to feel valued and that they've been of value and that they belong and Pauls not always very good at that and so the vicarious trauma through dealing with victims and witnesses that could be um, that could be lessened a lot if we thought the organization had their arms around us but it doesn't feel like that a no. lot of times and there is a lot of conflict between bosses and and others and I don't know. there is research to show that people in jobs such as policing or dhhs when you can't do anything about the problem when you can't hold back the sea, you turn on each other yes that that's where a, a lot of the day-to-day friction comes from mm. i think that that's true
0: yeah i think that's true Um, I was reading some of your notes and I was really interested in a technique that you've studied in called havening, Mm. which I haven't heard much about. Could you explain a little bit about that? Because I think it might be useful uh, for for people.
1: Well, if the audience get one thing out of today, this is what I hope it is. Try havening. (laughs) Excuse me. So it's haven as in safe haven. And it's a neurobiological... Um, way of increasing delta waves in the brain as a means of delinking emotion from trauma so traumatic memories don't get stored in the brain the way that ordinary memories do they get stuck on the amygdala so without going into too much detail it's a way of faster processing when we see danger if we've already experienced it it's faster processing, so we know to run, or fight, or play dead. Yes. Faster than we would if we are experiencing it for the first time. But of course, what happens is if that, that particular cell gets triggered over and over again, the alarm's going off when it needn't. Yes. And so we find ourselves at a heightened state which increases, then it's just day-to-day anxiety. Yes. Just
0: releases cortisol and you're you're constantly on alert or constantly flat, one or the other. That's it, exactly.
1: So your listeners may have heard of EMDR, eye movement desensitisation and reprocessing, which is the same part of the brain. It targets the same part of the brain and it does the same thing. It delinks memory from emotion. The thing with EMDR, which I am trained in, is that you need a a therapist in order to help you through that process. And this requires a lot of background, a lot of mapping, a lot of talking, a lot of targeting. It's intensive. It's intensive. Whereas havening, you don't even need to tell me what the the memory is.
0: What the trauma is. You don't have to relive it.
1: Exactly. Because, of course... You've got limited time in a session. If you open it all up and then you don't have time to re- to, to process it during the session, you're essentially leaving the client with it in a heightened mm. state and the, the session's done. Havening, you can learn to do it to yourself. And it's so simple. And the effects have been amazing.
0: Mm. Yeah, you were talking about one, one client. Would you share that with our listeners?
1: Mm-hmm. So... I actually had a session with her yesterday and she kindly uh, gave me permission to talk about her today. So I'm going to call her Sally, that's not her real name, but she's, she's lovely. She's beautiful on the inside and the outside. She's had the most traumatic life. She was given up for adoption as an infant. And then at six years of age, she was told that her birth mother had been dragged from a car and thrown over a cliff. In actual fact, she'd been bludgeoned to death by her partner. But either way, as a six-year-old, she suffered the trauma of hearing that news. And unfortunately, the family that she was adopted into had their own mental health issues serious. And there was a lot of domestic violence. By 16, she was sleeping in public toilet blocks, sleeping in paddocks. Mm. She has... Uh, gone on to have a ketamine addiction. She's, she's essentially suffered PTSD for
0: many, many like years. Many,
1: many years. Yeah. And uh, lots of behavioral problems. Heightened, heightened state of anxiety. And then of course drug addiction to...
0: To try and soothe herself really.
1: Exactly. That's, that's it. We're all trying, well not all of us, but many of us are trying to avoid suffering. Yes. And so we create a different type of suffering whether that be gambling, drugs Mm. sex, rock and roll shopping, Netflix. We're trying to numb those periods where we can't sleep our way through Mm. it. But we're actually creating more trauma. Mm. Sooner or later, if you live long enough the trauma is going to be processed in some way or you're going to a live a life that's going to show the fact that that you've lived with that trauma.
0: So finding uh, ways to self-soothe and calm that which doesn't involve big hits of alcohol or drugs or whatever other um, destructive ha- habit you may seek is really important I think to overall health.
1: It's super important and the, the ability to self-soothe full stop even if you don't have massive trauma but. Let's just say you're about to give an interview yes. or a, a lecture or you don't think that you can do your times table or you don't want to you feel like you're suffering from um social anxiety it's a way to self-soothe 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 so it's something really important that people can give their kids yes so that you're not reliant on others so essentially what it is is you We have delta waves in our brain all the time, but we have more of them when we're in deep sleep. And the way you can create them when you're awake is if you rub your shoulder to your elbow. So if you cross your arms and you rub from your shoulder to your elbow, and that creates delta waves increase. And then if you rub the palms of your hands together as if you had a marble in between the palms of your hands and you're gonna roll it around and around. And if you rub down the sides of your face so if you rub the sides of your face babies do that in the womb self-soothing and you may know if a little kid comes up to you and they're upset we automatically start to stroke them from their shoulder to their elbow when we're trying to them. Yes. so well, what's the matter as we stroke we do so I think that it's something that we've known mm. that our bodies know to do but Essentially, we've lost it and we take a pill instead. Yeah, yeah.
0: Or, a, or a half bottle of whiskey. Or a of whiskey, <laughs> which, exactly. which I did from time to time. Uh-huh. So yeah.
1: when those delta waves are increased, they unstick the glue that has stuck the emotion to the memory and the memory can go back into the filing cabinet the same way that ordinary memories do. Wow. So it's not about forgetting because that would be a stroke. Yeah. This is about... De-linking the, the emotion. emotion so that you're not triggered, and as you said, then that this goes on to have huge impacts on the body because when you have all this cortisol and and right. other neurotransmitters, and you, it's it's it releases chemicals that have to have an impact on our physical health. We try to pretend that the head is one thing and the body's another. It's just it's isn't interlinked.
0: So. No, I agree. Everything's interlinked. Um, well, that's fascinating. I'd love to speak more about that, but maybe that's a whole other podcast about that treatment because um, I, I think we've only just touched on it. But if people would like to get in touch with you, mm-hmm. uh, is there a way they can find you on the internet all the moment, or is that coming soon?
1: Sure, so well, I actually, um, I'm having a new website built but people can find me through Psychology Today or through the APS, Australian Psychological Society website, just under Deb Bennett, or my phone number is 0416151566.
0: Thank you, Deb. It was so interesting talking to you, and I I must say um, I sort of followed your, your career from afar uh, You know, ever since I saw you going to the FBI, um, and I think it was Vic Paul's loss not to have you contributing in some way, um, but I, I think... Your work as a private clinical psychologist is just as important because there's lots of us that need it. So thank you for everything and to talk again soon.
1: Thank you, Stu. Best of luck with with your organisation.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share with others or leave us a rating and a review. Thanks again and see you next time.